This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hector Hugh Monroe, born December 18, 1870, was a witty British author who published under the pen name Saki. The inspiration for the pen name Saki is unknown. It may be based upon a character in a poem or on a South American monkey. Given Monroe's intellect, wit, and mischievous nature, it's possible it was based on both simultaneously. As a writer, Monroe was a master of the short story form and is often compared to O. Henry and Dorothy Parker. E.F. Benson also shares his sardonic style. Monroe was born in Akya, Burma, now known as Myanmar, in 1870. Saki was raised in England, where he lived with his grandmother and aunts in a strict puritanical household. In his early career, Monroe became a police officer in India and was posted to Burma, where he contracted malaria before returning to England in 1895. Monroe had a penchant for mocking the popular customs and manners of Edwardian England. He often did so by depicting characters in a setting and manner that would contrast their behavior with that of the natural world, often demonstrating that the simple and straightforward rules of nature would always trump the vanities of men. Monroe died in France during World War I on November 13, 1916, by German sniper fire during the Battle of Anker. Though he was too old to enlist at 43, he had managed to gain a post in the 22nd Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers, where he was a lance sergeant. According to several sources, his last words were, Put that bloody cigarette out! And now, Fate, by H. H. Monroe, also known as Saki. Rex Dillett was nearly twenty-four, almost good-looking and quite penniless. His mother was supposed to make him some sort of an allowance out of what her creditors allowed her, and Rex occasionally strayed into the ranks of those who earned fitful salaries as secretaries or companions to people who were unable to cope unaided with their correspondence or their leisure. For a few months he had been assistant editor and business manager of a paper devoted to fancy mice, but the devotion had been all on one side, and the paper disappeared with a certain abruptness from club reading rooms and other haunts where it had made a gratuitous appearance. Still, Rex lived with some air of comfort and well-being, as one can live if one is born with a genius for that sort of thing, and a kindly providence usually arranged that his weekend invitations coincided with the dates on which his one white dinner waistcoat was in a laundry return condition of dazzling cleanness. He played most games badly and was shrewd enough to recognize the fact, but he had developed a marvelously accurate judgment in estimating the play and chances of other people, whether in a golf match, billiard handicap, or croquet tournament. 
by dint of parading his opinion of such and such a player's superiority with a sufficient degree of youthful assertiveness, he usually succeeded in provoking a wager at liberal odds, and he looked to his weekend winnings to carry him through the financial embarrassments of his midweek existence. The trouble was, as he confided to Clovis Sangrail, that he had never had enough available or even prospective cash at his command to enable him to fix the wager at a figure really worth winning. Some day, he said, I shall come across a really safe thing, a bet that simply can't go astray, and then I shall put it up for all I'm worth, or rather for a good deal more than I'm worth, if you sold me up to the last button. It would be awkward if it didn't happen to come off, said Clovis. It would be more than awkward, said Rex. It would be a tragedy. All the same, it would be extremely amusing to bring it off. Fancy awaking in the morning with about three hundred pounds standing to one's credit. I should go and clear out my hostess's pigeon loft before breakfast out of sheer good temper. Your hostess of the moment mightn't have a pigeon loft, said Clovis. I always choose hostesses that have, said Rex. A pigeon loft is indicative of a careless, extravagant, genial disposition, such as I like to see around me. People who strew corn broadcast for a lot of feathered inanities that just sit about cooing and giving each other the glad eye in a Louis Couture's manner are pretty certain to do you well. Young Strennett is coming down this afternoon, said Clovis, reflectively. I dare say you won't find it difficult to get him back to himself at billiards. He plays a pretty useful game, but he's not quite as good as he fancies he is. I know one member of the party who can walk around him said Rex, softly, an alert look coming into his eyes. That cadaverous-looking major who arrived last night. I've seen him play at San Moritz. If I could get Strennett to lay odds on himself against the major, the money would be safe in my pocket. This looks like the good thing I've been watching and praying for. Don't be rash, counseled Clovis. Strennett may play up to his self-imagined form once in a blue moon. I intend to be rash, said Rex, quietly, and the look on his face corroborated his words. "'Are you all going to flock to the billiard-room?' asked Teresa Thundleford, after dinner, with an air of some disapproval and a good deal of annoyance. "'I can't see what particular amusement you find in watching two men prodding little ivory balls about on a table.' "'Oh, well,' said her hostess, "'it's a way of passing the time, you know.' "'A very poor way to my mind,' said Mrs. Thundleford. "'Now I was going to have shown you all of the photographs I took in Venice last summer.' "'You showed them to us last night,' said Mrs. Covering, hastily. "'Those are the ones I took in Florence. These are quite a different lot.' "'Oh, well, sometime tomorrow we can look at them. You can leave them down in the drawing-room, and then everyone can have a look.' "'I should prefer to show them when you are all gathered together, "'as I have quite a lot of explanatory remarks to make "'about Venetian art and architecture, "'on the same lines as my remarks last night in the Florentine galleries. "'Also, there are some verses of mine that I should like to read you "'on the rebuilding of the Campanile. "'But, of course, if you all prefer to watch Major Latin and Mr. Strinnett "'knocking balls around on a table,' "'They are both supposed to be first-rate players,' said the hostess. "'I have yet to learn that my verses and my art causerie are of second-rate quality,' said Mrs. Thundleford, with acerbity. 
However, as you all seem bent upon watching a silly game, there's no more to be said. I shall go upstairs and finish some writing. Later on, perhaps, I will come down and join you. To one, at least, of the onlookers, the game was anything but silly. It was absorbing, exciting, exasperating, nerve-stretching, and finally it grew to be tragic. The major with the San Moritz reputation was playing a long way below his form. Young Strennett was playing slightly above his, and had all the luck of the game as well. From the very start, the ball seemed possessed by a demon of contrariness. They trundled about complacently for one player. They would go nowhere for the other. A hundred and seventy, seventy-four, sang out the youth who was marking. In a game of two hundred and fifty up, it was an enormous lead to hold. Clovis watched the flush of excitement die away from Dillett's face and a hard, white look take its place. "'How much have you to go on?' whispered Clovis. The other whispered the sum through dry, shaking lips. It was more than he or anyone connected with him could pay. He had done what he had said he would do. He had been rash. six to ninety-eight. Rex heard a clock strike ten somewhere in the hall. Then another somewhere else, and another, and another. The house seemed full of striking clocks. Then, in the distance, the stable clock chimed in. In another hour, they would all be striking eleven, and he would be listening to them as a disgraced outcast, unable to pay, even in part, the wager he had challenged. Two hundred eighteen, a hundred and three. The game was as good as over. Rex was as good as done for. He longed desperately for the ceiling to fall in, for the house to catch fire, or for anything to happen that would put an end to that horrible rolling to and fro of red and white ivory that was jostling him nearer and nearer to his doom. 228! 107! Rex opened his cigarette case. It was empty. That at least gave him a pretext to slip away from the room for the purpose of refilling it. He would spare himself the drawn-out torture of watching that hopeless game played out to the bitter end. He backed away from the circle of absorbed watchers and made his way up a short stairway to a long, silent corridor of bedrooms, each with a guest's name written in a little square on the door. In the hush that reigned in this part of the house, he could still hear the hateful click-click of the balls. If he waited for a few minutes longer, he would hear the little outbreak of clapping and buzz of congratulation that would hail Strinit's victory. On the alert tension of his nerves, there broke another sound, the aggressive, wraith-inducing breathing of one who sleeps in heavy after-dinner slumber. The sound came from a room just at his elbow. The card on the door bore the announcement, Mrs. Thundelford. The door was just slightly ajar. Rex pushed it open an inch or two more and looked in. The Auguste Teresa had fallen asleep over an illustrated guide to Florentine art galleries. At her side, somewhat dangerously near the edge of the table, was a reading lamp. If fate had been decently kind to him, thought Rex bitterly, that lamp would have been knocked over by the sleeper and would have given them something to think of besides billiard matches. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. There are occasions when one must take fate in one's hands. Rex took the lamp in his. 237, 115. Strinnett was at the table, and the balls lay in good position for him. He had a choice of two fairly easy shots, a choice which he was never to decide. A sudden hurricane of shrieks and a rush of stumbling feet sent everyone flocking to the door. The Dillard boy crashed into the room, carrying in his arms the vociferous and somewhat disheveled Teresa Thunderford. Her clothing was certainly not a mass of flames, as the more excitable members of the party afterwards declared, but the edge of her skirt and part of the table cover in which she had been hastily wrapped were alight in a flickering, half-hearted manner. Rex flung his struggling burden on the billiard table, and for one breathless minute the work of beating out the sparks with rugs and cushions and playing on them with soda-water siphons engrossed the energies of the entire company. "'It was lucky I was passing when it was happened,' panted Rex. "'Someone had better see to the room. I think the carpet is alight.' As a matter of fact, the promptitude and energy of the rescuer had prevented any great damage being done, either to the victim or her surroundings. The billiard table had suffered most, and had to be laid up for repairs. Perhaps it was not the best place to have chosen for the scene of salvage operations. But then, as Clovis remarked, when one is rushing about with a blazing woman in one's arms, one can't stop to think out exactly where one is going to put her. Thank you for joining us for Fate by H. H. Monroe or Saki. And now, our second story, On Approval, by Saki. Of all the genuine bohemians who strayed from time to time into the would-be bohemian circle of the restaurant Nuremberg, Owl Street, Soho, none was more interesting or more elusive than Gebhard Nofschrank. He had no friends, and though he treated all the restaurant frequenters as acquaintances, he never seemed to wish to carry the acquaintanceship beyond the door that led into Owl Street and the outer world. He dealt with them all rather as a market woman might deal with chance passers-by, exhibiting her wares and chattering about the weather and the slackness of business, occasionally about rheumatism, but never showing a desire to penetrate into their daily lives or to dissect their ambitions. He was understood to belong to a family of peasant farmers somewhere in Pomerania. Some two years ago, according to all that was known of him, he had abandoned the labors and responsibilities of swine-tending and goose-rearing to try his fortune as an artist in London. Why London and not Paris or Munich? he had been asked by the curious. Well, there was a ship that left Stolpman for London twice a month that carried few passengers but carried them cheaply. The railway fares to Munich or Paris were not cheap. Thus it was that he came to select London as the scene of his great adventure. The question that had long and seriously agitated the frequenters of Nuremberg was whether this goose-boy migrant was really a soul-driven genius, spreading his wings to the light, 
or merely an enterprising young man who fancied he could paint and was pardonably anxious to escape from the monotony of the rye-bread diet and the sandy, swine-bestrewn plains of Pomerania. There was reasonable ground for doubt and caution. The artistic groups that foregathered at the little restaurant contained so many young women with short hair and so many young men with long hair who supposed themselves to be abnormally gifted in the domain of music, poetry, painting, or stagecraft, with little or nothing to support the supposition. That a self-announced genius of any sort in their midst was inevitably suspect. On the other hand, there was the ever-imminent danger of entertaining and snubbing an angel unawares. There had been the lamentable case of Sledanti, the dramatic poet, who had been belittled and cold-shouldered in the Owl Street Hall of Judgment, and had been afterwards hailed as a master singer by the Grand Duke Constantine Constantinovich, the most educated of the Romanovs, according to Sylvia Strubel, who spoke rather as one who knew every individual member of the Russian imperial family. As a matter of fact, she knew a newspaper correspondent, a young man who ate borscht with the air of having invented it. Sladanti's Poems of Death and Passion were now being sold by the thousand in seven European languages, and were about to be translated into Syrian, a circumstance which made the discerning critics of the Nuremberg rather shy of maturing their future judgments too rapidly and too irrevocably. As regards Knopfschrank's work, they did not lack opportunity for inspecting and appraising it. However resolutely he might hold himself aloof from the social life of his restaurant acquaintances, he was not minded to hide his artistic performances from their inquiring gaze. Every evening, or nearly every evening, at about seven o'clock, he would make his appearance, set himself down at his accustomed table, throw a bulky black portfolio onto the chair opposite him, nod round indiscriminately at his fellow guests, and commence the serious business of eating and drinking. When the coffee stage was reached, he would light a cigarette, draw the portfolio over to him, and begin to rummage among its contents. With slow deliberation, he would select a few of his more recent studies and sketches, and silently pass them round from table to table, paying especial attention to any new diners who might be present. On the back of each sketch was marked in plain figures the announcement, Price, ten shillings. If his work was not obviously stamped with the hallmark of genius, at any rate it was remarkable for its choice of an unusual and unvarying theme. His pictures always represented some well-known street or public place in London, falling into decay and denuded of its human population, in the place of which there roamed a wild fauna, which, from its wealth of exotic species, must have originally escaped from zoological gardens and traveling beast shows. Giraffes drinking at the fountain pools, Trafalgar Square, was one of the most notable and characteristic of his studies, while even more sensational was the gruesome picture of Vultures Attacking Dying Camel in Upper Berkeley Street. There were also photographs of the large canvas on which he had been engaged for some months, and which he was now endeavoring to sell to some enterprising dealer or adventurous amateur. The subject was Hyenas Asleep in Euston Station, a composition that left nothing to be desired in the way of suggesting unfathomed depths of desolation. Of course, it may be immensely clever. It may be something epoch-making in the realm of art. 
said Sylvia Strubble to her own particular circle of listeners. But, on the other hand, it may be merely mad. One mustn't pay too much attention to the commercial aspect of the case, of course, but still, if some dealer would make a bid for that hyena picture, or even for some of the sketches, we should know better how to place the man and his work. We may all be cursing ourselves one of these days, said Mrs. Newgott Jones, for not having bought up his entire portfolio of sketches. At the same time, when there is so much real talent going about, one does not feel like planking down ten shillings for what looks like a bit of whimsical oddity. Now that picture that he showed us last week, Sandgrouse roosting on the Albert Memorial, was very impressive, and of course I could see that there was good workmanship in it, and breadth of treatment, but it didn't in the least convey the Albert Memorial to me. And Sir James Beanquest tells me that Sandgrouse don't roost, they sleep on the ground. Whatever talent or genius the Pomeranian artist might possess, it certainly failed to receive commercial sanction. The portfolio remained bulky with unsold sketches, and the Houston Siesta, as the wits of the Nuremberg nicknamed the large canvas, was still in the market. The outward and visible signs of financial embarrassment began to be noticeable. The half-bottle of cheap claret at dinner-time gave way to a small glass of lager, and this in turn was displaced by water. The one-and-sixpenny-set dinner receded from an everyday event to a Sunday extravagance. On ordinary days, the artist contented himself with a seven-penny omelet and some bread and cheese, and there were evenings when he did not put in an appearance at all. On the rare occasions when he spoke of his own affairs, it was observed that he began to talk more about Pomerania and less about the great world of art. "'It is a busy time there now with us,' he said wistfully. The swines are driven out into the fields after harvest, and must be looked after. I could be helping to look after if I was there. Here it is difficult to live. Art is not appreciated. Why don't you go home on a visit? Someone asked tactfully. Ah, it costs money. There is the ship passage to Stolpmund, and there is money that I owe at my lodgings. Even here I owe a few shillings. If I could sell some of my sketches, however— Perhaps, suggested Mrs. Nougat Jones, if you were to offer them for a little less, some of us would be glad to buy a few. Ten shillings is always a consideration, you know, to people who are not over well off. Perhaps if you were to ask six or seven shillings. Once a peasant, always a peasant. The mere suggestion of a bargain to be struck brought a twinkle of awakened alertness into the artist's eyes and hardened the lines of his mouth. Nine shilling, nine pence each, he snapped, and seemed disappointed that Mrs. Nougat Jones did not pursue the subject further. He had evidently expected her to offer seven and four pence. The weeks sped by, and Knopfschrank came more rarely to the restaurant in Owl Street, while his meals on those occasions became more and more meager. And then came a triumphal day, when he appeared early in the evening in a high state of elation, and ordered an elaborate meal that scarcely stopped short of being a banquet. The ordinary resources of the kitchen were supplemented by an imported dish of smoked goose-breast, a Pomeranian delicacy that was luckily procurable at a firm of delicatessen merchants in Coventry Street, while a long-necked bottle of Rhine wine gave a finishing touch of festivity and good cheer to the crowded table. "'He has evidently sold his masterpiece,' whispered Sylvia Strubble to Mrs. Nougat-Jones, 
who had come in late. "'Who has bought it?' she whispered back. "'Don't know. He hasn't said anything yet, but it must be some American. Do you see? He's got a little American flag on the dessert dish, and he's put pennies in the music box three times. Once to play the Star-Spangled Banner, and then a Sousa march, and then the Star-Spangled Banner again. It must be an American millionaire.' "'and he's evidently got a very big price for it. "'He's just beaming and chuckling with satisfaction. "'We must ask him who has bought it,' said Mrs. Nougat Jones. "'Hush! No, don't. "'Let's buy some of his sketches, quick, "'before we're supposed to know that he's famous. "'Otherwise he'll be doubling the prices. "'I am so glad he's had a success at last. "'I always believed in him, you know.' "'For the sum of ten shillings each,' Miss Strubble acquired the drawings of the camel dying in Upper Berkeley Street and of the giraffes quenching their thirst in Trafalgar Square. At the same price, Mrs. Nougat Jones secured the study of roosting sand grouse. A more ambitious picture, Wolves and Wapiti fighting on the steps of the Athenian Club, found a purchaser at fifteen shillings. "'And now, what are your plans?' asked a young man who contributed occasional paragraphs to an artistic weekly. "'I go back to Stulpmund as soon as the ship sails,' said the artist, "'and I do not return. Never.' "'But your work, your career as a painter.' "'Ah, there's nothing in it. One starves. "'To today I have sold not one of my sketches. "'Tonight you have bought a few, because I am going away from you. "'But at other times, not one.' "'But has not some American—' "'Ah, the rich American!' chuckled the artist. "'God be thanked. "'He dashed his car right into our herd of swines "'as they were being driven out to the fields. "'Many of our best swines are killed, "'but he paid all damages. "'He paid perhaps more than they were worth, "'many times more than they would have fetched in the market "'after a month of fattening. "'But he was in a hurry to get on to Danzig. "'When one is in a hurry, "'one must pay what one has asked. "'God be thanked for rich Americans "'who are always in a hurry to get somewhere else. "'My father and mother... They have now so plenty of money, they send me some to pay my debts and come home. I start on Monday for Stolpmund, and I do not come back. Never. But your picture? The hyenas? No good. It's too big to carry to Stolpmund. I burn it. In time, he will be forgotten. But at present, Nafschrank is almost as sore a subject as Sladati, with some of the frequenters of the Nuremberg restaurant. Owl Street, Soho. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Please do send us a kind review if you'd enjoy these stories or any of the stories in our archives. Check our show notes to see how you can subscribe free to any of our four podcasts. 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, this one. 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. 1001 Stories for the Road, where we do our long-format shows, and 1001 Radio Days. Thank you so very much for joining us. We'll be back soon.